0: oh well then what is this the bonus episode that you were promised uh yes yep that's that's exactly what it is that's that's this is it as we were talking about the news in the main show this week we thought about the people we'd love to speak to and right at the very top of that list with the former director of bbc news richard sandbrook a man who was at the beating heart of news in this country for so long and has unparalleled insight and experience. What is perhaps paralleled is the enthusiasm for the industry of our very own head of news, James O'Malley. This episode is the conversation between James and Richard, recorded this week, covering everything from push notifications and judgment calls to the Queen's death and the future of BBC News itself. I was outside the studio, but uh, I'll be honest, I got distracted by listening to the BBC News theme tune on repeat for 45 minutes. So let me tell you, I am glad we recorded this because I've just listened and really it's very interesting. So here is What's Happening Now's James O'Malley with Richard Sandbrook.
1: So I'm here with Richard Sarmbrook. I'm delighted to be joined by you, Richard, because you're a very important man. You've been 30 years uh, working at the BBC um, and doing sort of every role under the sun. You've been a programme director of the the National bulletins. You ended up as director of news, uh, director of the World Service. Uh, You've been making the news happen for all of that time. Well I, I did for a while James anyway that's, that's true <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, I guess could we start by uh, we, we want to sort of dig into how the news works today but could we start by you perhaps just telling me what it's like being in the newsroom when a major story breaks. How does it feel? Do you suddenly feel a sort of rush of anxiety of energy? What what happens? Oh, it's, a,
2: it's a rush of adrenaline for sure but you know most people who work in newsrooms are you know energized by breaking news and big mm. breaking news and of course it's very challenging because you've got to work out how you're going to cover it and how you're going to report it and what resources you've got and how you deploy them and you know it depends on what kind of deadlines you're working to and you know mm. today there aren't really deadlines you're always on so <laughs> uh, it is really challenging but you know a lot of people who work in newsrooms that's what they live for they love the love the
1: adrenaline of breaking news so it's uh, mm. it's an exciting environment Cool, and can we can you take me back to your, your BBC days? Because one thing I'm really curious about is what makes the news. How do we decide what goes on the top of the bulletin? If you're you're putting together or you're thinking about what's going to lead uh, the six o'clock news or the ten o'clock news, what what goes into those sorts of decisions? Well,
2: there's lots of different things. I mean, I should start by saying, of course, there's lots of different kinds of journalism and different kinds of news organisations. So mm. the kind of conversation you'd have on the Daily Mail or in the Guardian would be very different from the one you have in the BBC, probably. But, you know, for example, if you're in a newspaper, you will know the demographic of your readers and you'll be trying to think about what would appeal to them, Mm. or kind of press their buttons and engage them, you know. Uh, If you're in the BBC, you're a public service broadcaster and publicly funded, so um, you're supposed to think slightly differently. And I'll come to the supposed bit in a moment. (laughs) Um, You know, you're supposed to work out what's of public interest, what's of importance to the public, as opposed to, what do they particularly want to click on and what are they desperate to see or hear about. But, of course, also the BBC needs viewers and listeners and it wants to have a big audience. So it's got to find a mix of what people want to know about and what it thinks they need to know about. Mm. And that need to know about, you know, is a little bit um, patrician, if we like. You know, it's a little bit old-fashioned, elitist, some people might call it today. But it's also what the public funding is there to invest in. It's supposed to pay for the specialists who can tell you, understand the world uh, pay for kind of you know very experienced journalists who can explain it and so on as well so that's really what it's about
0: mm. so there'll
2: be a morning meeting uh, and this is probably a, the format for most news organizations you start with a morning meeting and the planning diary where you know people have set out everything that they know is going to happen that day mm. and then of course things will change and news will break and all the rest of it and there'll be a meeting of the senior editors and they'll talk about what they know is going to happen and what happened overnight and you know reaction to whatever they did the day before and so on as well. And they will work out some priorities. They think that this is more important than that. And there's a lot of criteria that go into that, some of its timing. So Mm. if something's just happened, it kind of raises up because we need to tell people what's just happened. If something's new or it's got real novelty or is particularly unusual or is a particular scale and, and, you know, that's kind of wars and earthquakes and, you know, disasters and so on as well. So there's a whole range of, of, you know, different factors that, that go into it. And, of course, there are running and rolling stories that, you know, editors will think they need to keep the public up to date with and up to date with the latest changes. And, you know, Partygate perhaps was a good example of that. So there's a whole range of different factors and criteria that go into it. And then depending on what newsroom you're in and what the values of that news organisation are, you will make a decision about, well, I think we'll put our emphasis on, on this one or two stories today. Uh, and you know we'll do these differently and perhaps we won't bother with that one and then of course that will be refined you know during the day either if you're in a 24-hour news channel or for all news organizations social media and all the rest of it depending on what happens they'll change their their priorities a little bit and for those big bulletins again as the day goes on they will decide you know what they're going to commit to in terms of their resources and effort
1: Mm. how do you go about making when you, you must get confronted with situations where you do get sort of apples versus oranges as the yeah. choice you know is it the polish election or holly willoughby leaving this morning yeah. um like when, well that's a pretty easy one for me mm. but um i think
2: you know so if you're a so so this is my point about different kinds of news organization if you're on a tabloid newspaper mm. it's what's going to you know excite or anger your readership the most uh because they want to press those buttons and get those clicks if you're in a bbc newsroom it should be what matters the most what's the most significant thing that's happened today and and in which case you know it's the polish elections not holly willoughby but mm. um with all due respect to um <laughs> gmb viewers or whatever it is but um you know those those are will vary according to the kind of news organization you are really and you know i i, I think the risk the supposed bit that i referred to before is that mm. i think the today we live in a very volatile fast changing Very competitive media environment. Everybody wants people's attention. Um, You know, we're all saturated with media organisations of all kinds and social media calling for our attention. So even if you're publicly funded like the BBC, you're desperate to put out something that people are going to respond to. Mm. So that's why I suppose they led with Philip Schofield for several days rather Mm. than international news. Now, I'm an old fashioned. BBC journalist. I'm an old general carping from the sidelines. I couldn't understand why they did that. (laughs) I think the the, uh, the argument would be that for a younger audience that they're desperate to get in order to secure a future audience, that meant more to them and that was going to generate more clicks and all the rest of it. But I still think a publicly funded news organisation needs to concentrate on what's significant rather than what's, you know, uh, uh, necessarily the kind of tabloid headline of the day.
1: Mm. Do you think the person who controls the BBC's push alerts on their news app, is that the most powerful person in Britain?
2: <laughs> well I suppose it's, it's, it is a pretty powerful powerful job in many ways. Only one, I don't know about in Britain but they certainly have a pretty significant role in the newsroom but they know Mm. their job is i suppose to decide what's going to draw people to the website so they will Mm. push out what they think is going to bring people back to a bbc site because as i said before even though it's a public service organization it wants readers and viewers and users as much as anybody else so they're going to be saying you know is this is this story going to pull people back Uh, i personally think you know people say oh the you know, the, 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 the front screen of your smartphone is the most battled over piece of a media environment at the moment for those push alerts and all the rest of it. I actually think it's overdone. I think not just talking about the BBC here. You know, I think too many news organizations push out breaking news and news alerts the whole time to try and draw you back. So I switch them off because it's, you know, it's just constantly going on and most of it's I don't need to know about. So I think it can be overplayed.
1: And um, so there's so many topics I, w- I want to ask you about, but something I think we, we have to touch upon because this is you know, literally what's happening now uh, is the, uh, the current situation uh, in Israel and Palestine. Mercifully, I'm not going to ask you uh, what you think about how to solve that because nobody knows that. <laughs> um, but one thing that is really curious from a sort of media perspective is over the last uh, sort of 24 hours, there has been some controversy um, over the, the supposed uh, bombing slash uh, blowing up question mark of um, a hospital in Gaza mm. uh, I know uh, last night the BBC uh, posted um, a story and had as their headline that the Palestinian uh, authorities so I guess uh, Hamas were saying that it was uh, the Israelis who blew the hospital up uh, this morning it seems that uh, not at all is as it seemed then uh, it seems it could have been Hamas themselves who did it uh, so just as someone who's involved in news gathering obviously it's an incredibly complex uh, situation how do you th- what do you think uh, happened there in terms of do you think something went wrong is that just news gathering as it happens where everything's not always clear to start with i i
2: think it probably is news gathering as it happens um mm. i mean obviously i haven't read and watched and seen every aspect of the bbc coverage of that mm. so you know your listeners may want to you know call on me and say oh you got that wrong or whatever but um uh, you know when major events happen it is initially confusing uh we live in this news environment where people want an instant news alert and instant reaction uh, the important thing, I think, is attribution. So, you know, as long as they say Hamas says this or the IDF say that, mm-hmm. then that's straight reporting and an attribution. So that that gets you quite a long way through. Um, but I think, we, you know, we also live in a, 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 an era where we're awash with opinion, not all of it very well informed, uh, and there's a real premium on first-hand reporting. Uh, and I am much more interested in someone who's been there on the ground, found evidence can can set out the evidence they found and explain why they may reach a certain conclusion than I and someone sitting behind their computer screen somewhere a long <laughs> way away you know going off the top of their head about how angry they are that the way somebody you know phrased a particular um, piece of the script or something so uh, I think it's a real premium on first-hand eyewitness evidence-based reporting and I'm personally less interested in you know the great kind of outpourings of um, opinion that we get everywhere at the moment. In that particular case, you know, as I said, I didn't see or hear or listen to everything, but I think it was probably um, uh, they were able to to report what they heard, and I hope they attributed what they heard at those early stages. Um, but of course, people were then going to pile in because, uh, you know, in this story, more than most, um, uh, uh, various sides want to recruit all of the media over to their side of the argument and their side of the line. So whatever... Mm an organisation like the BBC says will be know, contentious.
1: I I get the impression that, you know, both sides are sort of trying to work the refs. They're trying to sort of persuade the BBC that uh, their perspective is is the correct one, because that helps uh, their cause. I I guess another example of that from, again, recent days um, is, again, the the debate over whether uh, the BBC should describe uh, Hamas as terrorists. Uh, There was a lot of complaints from from some people that uh, they were referring to them as militants. Uh, My understanding is this is fairly long-standing editorial policy. I was just wondering if you've got a view on how best
2: to sort of tackle this. So, I mean, there's a couple of reasons why that policy exists, and then Mm. I'll come to a couple of kind of questions I've got about it, really. Mm. So it's not just a BBC thing, by the way. It's always the BBC that gets singled out, presumably because it's a publicly funded broadcaster, but it's the same policy that most, you know, big international news organisations have. So it's the same Mm. policy as Reuters, the Associated Press, ITN, Sky, the New York Times, the Financial Times. I could go on and on. They all have the same policy. Uh, And it's really... Two main reasons behind it. One is because to ascribe or to call somebody a, a terrorist or a terrorist organisation places you on one side of the line. The old cliche was one man's terrorist is another mm. man's freedom fighter. That's too pat now, um, but uh, nevertheless, it's true. You, you know, you're ascribing a particular political position, and uh, as an international. Uh, news organisation in particular, that's quite a difficult thing to do. And related to that, of course, you're going to have your staff working on both sides of the line. And, you know, if if, if the BBC you know, called Hamas a terrorist organisation and, you know, attack them in the way that some of the, the BBC's critics want them to do, then it would be extremely difficult for the BBC to work in Gaza. So, you know, uh, or indeed Reuters or the Associated Press or any of those other news organisations. So that's are sort of kind of the reasons behind it to avoid getting recruited to one side of the line, one side of the argument. I, I, I've got a couple of problems with it. I, I think militant is an v- absolutely inadequate word to use in its place. It was probably used in my time at the BBC, so, you know, uh, but, but as I sat and watched that coverage, militant didn't feel right. I might mm. have preferred gunman or something that was a bit clearer about what was going on. And, of course, the real problem with it is, is that it feels as if, the, you know, the news organisation is kind of shilly-shallying around what took place. And there's no, you know, it lacks moral clarity about mm. what was clearly a horrific terrorist attack. And that's a real problem, I think, for the BBC. And I, I personally, if I was still there, would be urging them to review and rethink, not to change the policy and say, "Oh, we need to call, call you know this terrorist or that terrorist," but to look at how they do it, what, what their use of language is. Is there a way, for example, of differentiating between the kind of political affiliation of calling something terrorist and a terror, an act of terror? Mm. Because what happened, um, you know, last weekend was clearly an act of terror. Uh, so you know i think i think there may be ways through it which can can kind of resolve the the problems that there are but i i would absolutely defend all those news organisations who subscribe to that policy as it being a necessary policy, even though it's very difficult for some people to understand.
1: Mm. This is maybe tangential, but are there there parallels we can draw with... I know in America there's been a big debate over, I think they call it moral clarity, the idea that um, when reporting on Trump, this became a big thing during the Trump administration, um, where some reporters argued that the the New York Times was always... Because they're the big institution in America, that was the one the Americans were beating up. And it was always argued that they should say in the headline... Trump said something racist rather than Trump made some controversial remarks. Yeah. Is there a sort of parallel there, do you think?
2: Yeah, I think there is a parallel there. And and I think, you know, it's also true, um, you know, Wes Lowry, a New York Times uh, reporter, wrote a very uh, thoughtful piece about that question of moral mm. clarity and, and how actually a lot of the language that news organisations use to avoid getting recruited to some side of the argument uh, actually is kind of ugly and and confusing and nonsense, and actually Mm. we need to have much more straightforward reporting about what happened. In in the terrorist attack case, I actually think the BBC said repeatedly that Hamas is a prescribed organisation by the UK, the US um, and the EU and so on as well. They explained in detail what had happened. I don't think anybody could accuse the BBC coverage of sanitising what took place. So, you know, it's about being
1: clear about what's happened and reporting it clearly. And um, and again, just sort of uh, digging into another topic I wanted to sort of dig into, because when it comes to sort of putting together the news and you're trying to sort of uh, come up with this sort of balance and trying to treat, treat topics fairly, I think there's so many different... Uh, vectors on which you have to sort of make these really difficult decisions around so for example how how do you think uh, a news organization like the BBC should approach sort of an asymmetrical controversy where you've got something where uh, like climate change for example where the overwhelming weight of expert consensus is climate change is a real and bad thing uh, but the political consensus is maybe very different or uh, you know or Brexit or something where again uh, a lot of the sort of elite expert opinion was a consensus of oh it's bad and you know look, look here's some graphs of some lines going down it all looks very bad uh, but then obviously the politics of that are very different mm. so when when you've got a situation where there's political controversy but in one area but consensus in another how how this is a very broad question i know but how how can you even approach that in a way that's balanced and fair and is going to try and treat the topic fairly well
2: I, I i don't think it is a complicated one i mean and, and also i I don't think the BBC got it entirely right, either on climate change or on Brexit, though they were well-intentioned. Mm. But the way through it is to stick to the evidence. So, you know, you report the evidence that there is and the analysis that there is, and you weight the views appropriately. And, you know, a lot of people criticise impartiality or objectivity as a notion, which is what the BBC, amongst other news organisations, tries to achieve, because they say, oh, it's just false equivalence. It's both sidesism, you've got to say on the one hand, but on the other. Well, that's not the benchmark for impartiality that you know if it's if you come to some false equivalence then you've gone wrong but and that's not what impartiality is 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 being uh, 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 is trying to achieve at all. In fact, it's rather the opposite of that. Properly properly conducted impartial journalism would properly weight those arguments so that the audience is absolutely clear that mm. 90% of the world's climate scientists, 90% plus, think this, and actually those who think the opposite are the mavericks. The public needs to know that and understand that rather than, you know, the false equivalence. That's when it's done properly, and that is impartial journalism if you do that. And the way to get there is to... Set out the evidence clearly, and then you know allow the public to to, to recognise and make up their own minds.
1: There was a really weird thing I think that's happened over the last few years. Now I, I say I say this as someone who's. You know, very pro doing things about climate change. Um, but if you look back at sort of uh, the coverage of the Glasgow COP conference uh, a couple of years ago, when there was a more broader political consensus around reaching net zero and, in, and employing measures to do it, and then you compare it to, well, I suppose, just the last few weeks where now the Conservative Party are very much in the, you know, let's approach net zero from a more slow a slower perspective. It strikes me as that if that conference was to happen again, you wouldn't get quite the coverage in the same way because maybe this is just my sort of uh, rose-tinted memories of it, I remember the coverage at the time of the conference being very much everyone's agreed we need to do something that's very important and it was it didn't feel as contested as it is mm. now, and you 've almost gone from a situation of consensus to contestation and then how do you think news coverage well, should evolve to sort of reflect that i mean i mean that that's happened because
2: of the politics and you know the, the politics of something has to be reported alongside whatever the evidence may be and when you 've got a govern a government a governing party who are in power and therefore you know in a position to Um, institute policies and so on and make changes basically shifting their position on it then that is bound to be reported and reflected and I think that's some of what we've had over Mm. net zero because you know in in my view this government has tried to use climate and climate measures as a kind of wedge issue to try to um, solidify you know a particular base of supporters uh, going into the next election. Mm. So that's all of the politics behind it. But I think that's why it's important as well to set out the evidence that sits underneath it. And, you know, actually, I do see the evidence still. You do still see the IPCC reports and mm. UN reports and so on uh, uh, that do set out, you know, the the, the, the overwhelming evidence um, produced by... You know, expert analysis and so on as well.
1: And th- so, I, I've obviously been trying to sort of <laughs> almost poke you with some difficult issues to see, if you, see, see what <laughs> your take is. Is there a single story that you can think back to from your 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 career working at the BBC? What was the most sort of editorially nightmarish story for you to cover? Do you think?
2: Um, I, I, I suppose, uh, just thinking back, I mean, the Middle East was always difficult because mm. you know the, the the crises and the conflicts in the Middle East you know, never seem to go away and they are incredibly divisive and, and polarising and also, of course, you know, enormous casualties and violence and so on as well. So that was always difficult. Um, you know, there was the Iraq War, which was very contentious, both both politically, uh, before and after the mm-hmm. conflict. That was quite difficult. Um, uh, and I suppose before that, Northern Ireland was very difficult as well. Um, mm-hmm. Again, for the same reason, because actually public opinion and obviously the situation on the ground was very polarized so you know when you get these polarized situations you've got camps that that basically are saying either you're with us or you're against us there is no legitimate mi- middle neutral ground but mm. if you're a public service broadcaster you've got to try and occupy some legitimate neutral middle ground. Not middle necessarily, but neutral ground. Um, uh, I say not middle because it's, you know, not everything is about the centre of the argument. Mm. But, um, you know, when it's polarised and you're either either you're for us or against us, it makes it very difficult to to do something that two very, very, you know, divided camps can accept and recognise as legitimate.
1: Do you think the BBC... Is does have any biases at all, just institutionally through the way it's
2: structured? Well of course it does, because it's you know it's full of human beings and it's a big and complicated organization and it's certainly not perfect. You know, no mm. organisation of that size and scale would be. Um so I mean I suppose it, it, it has a, a slight bias towards the status quo, um, as an institution, um, a slight bias towards multilateralism, for example. Um, because it's a global broadcaster, an international mm. broadcaster. Um, so, you know, there are biases that are kind of built into the nature of it as an institution. Um, the argument that says, oh, it's full of, you know, soft lefties, I don't think it's true. I, you know, mm. I I never really knew how most of my colleagues were felt politically or voted politically. And uh, that those that kind of broke cover, I can think of as many on the right as I can on the left. Um, And the real issue about that kind of bias is not what people who work there or who are employed may or may not think. The issue is what is the output coming out? Because Mm. the job of the BBC is to have a professional culture and, you know, internal processes and working culture and working processes that actually deliver an impartial and fair output. And so mm. it needs to be it needs to be judged on what it broadcasts, not on who it recruits
1: i I always quite like i, I, I i'm a, i'm fairly sympathetic to the argument, and i say this as a, a sort of cosmopolitan elite myself sort of, uh, but of the BBC having a sort of cosmopolitan city-dwelling bias because ultimately, you know, it's, it's a city-based organisation, all the employees are affluent media people uh, in fairly upscale careers. Do you think that that does inform I think, that's, I think that's.
2: I think it may have been fair to say that informed it at one time. Uh, I think that's changing for a couple of reasons. Firstly, the BBC's doing quite a lot to shift teams out of London. So there was a time when, you know, most of its national broadcasting, most not all, came from London in one way or another. That's not mm. so now. It's shifted a lot of it, you know, out to the nations and regions and, and is continuing to do more of that. Um, also, to be honest with you, media careers are not the kind of incredibly <laughs> uh, privileged and wealthy careers people might once have thought they were. I mean, if you are, a, you know, a, a producer uh, uh, in the BBC, you're not going to be that well paid in comparison with many other things you could be doing. So... You know, it's not quite what people might think it is, and um, as I say, it is moving more out of London. And I think that's a healthy thing.
1: Mm. Do, you, do you ever worry? That I always worry because I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a fan of the BBC, uh, but I I always worry the BBC overcorrects a bit. Like when you, when you when it gets accusations like this, it will almost. You know, it would do- trying to demonstrate how, uh, and it goes goes too far the other way. I'm just thinking of like the the coverage about uh, Hugh Edwards and that story a few weeks ago. I got the impression that the BBC were really hammering that hard. I still got 50 million push alerts about that one story, and I guess that's because someone there didn't want to be accused of bias, so they were almost going yeah. too far the other way.
2: I think that's probably true, but I think I think you know, and the BBC has to report on itself. It's an incredibly mm. difficult thing to do. Um, and particularly if you're reporting on colleagues. Mm. So it is far better for it to demonstrate that it is trying to do so independently rather than be accused of going soft or or pulling its punches. Uh, I mm. mean, to be honest with you, I can think of no other organisation that would report on itself as critically uh, and as aggressively as the BBC reports on itself. I can't think of mm. any other organisation in the world that would do it. But I do think it's probably the right thing to do. Uh, as, of course, you don't want to go wildly over the top and people's ju- judgment about you know whether that story went too far or other stories went too far will mm. vary but i think it's right for the bbc to be assertively critical of itself when those bbc crises inevitably appear <laughs>
1: And then the only other question I've got, to um, about sort of impartiality and balance and so on is a curious one. Because one thing we've seen over the last few years is a sort of new model of impartiality emerge. If you look at the likes of um, LBC or theoretically on paper GB News, where rather than try and be sort of fair and balanced down the line, they instead they adopt a model where it's we've got some left wing presenters and some right wing presenters. Yeah. And you get an hour of for every hour of Nick Ferrari, you get an hour of James O'Brien or something like that. What do do you make of that sort of model of doing news? Does that work for you?
2: Well, some of it works and some of it doesn't. So, I mean, I I think an important part of impartiality, and we should explain that in the UK, all broadcasters regulated by Ofcom have to show due impartiality, particularly over their coverage of politics. Due impartiality means there's a little bit of scope for how you do it and for judgment around it. Um, So not every single report has to be perfectly balanced, for example. Um, so I think, you know, part of that is uh, having a range of voices and opinions. And if anything, I'm critical of all broadcasters in the UK that have quite a narrow range of uh, opinions, m- largely limited to kind of Westminster and, you know, slightly beyond in terms of business voices. I don't, but I think there's, there could be a far wider range of opinions and uh, view perspectives and so on than you generally see and hear. So the LBC example, I don't have any problem with because, you know, you can hear James O'Brien and you can hear Nick Ferrari and you can hear Nigel Farage and you can hear, you know, someone else. That's fine. I have a bit of a problem with GB News because they kind of say that's what they do, but they don't really. Um, So, you know, all of all of their main presenters come from the right. All of their evening kind of rant shows are from the right. They will, of course, you know, interview people uh, within the news output who come from a different perspective, but it's usually to put them on trial. And my other problem with it is that they indulge in conspiracy theory stuff. And I I can't see any justification for that, really. Mm. Free speech has responsibilities. Every right carries commensurate responsibilities and people talk very very you know strongly about the right of free speech and how important it is they never talk about the responsibilities that go along with that part of those responsibilities are not to feed conspiracy theories uh, it's not to pour vitriol onto the airwaves uh, it's not to feed hate speech you know we could go on about the protection of children and making sure there is a a broad spread of opinion not just coming from one direction, and I think that's the that's the real issue. If we're going to move more to an American model, I think it needs to be done you know, rather more carefully and thoughtfully than happened in America, where I would say the broadcasting ecosystem is mm.
1: really pretty awful. Can you imagine the BBC evolving to adapt to that sort of model a bit more? I'm just thinking if you look at uh, people who have left the BBC in recent years who have gone on to do more opinion-oriented stuff, you've got Andrew Marr, who went to The mm. New Statesman, uh, Emily Maitlis and John Sopel, they went to... Uh, Global to make their podcast where they can yeah. be a little bit more well, um, feisty the, with their the, opinions? The point is they had to leave to do it. Mm. And, I, and I actually think if there is more opinionated
2: broadcasting in Britain, and, and I've got mixed feelings about that, then I actually think that might be quite good for the BBC to stand apart from that and mm. say, well, all these other people, can, uh, you know, they've got their opinions on the left and opinions on the right, but it's the BBC that, that properly weighs those up and gives you the kind of more fact-based, evidence-based coverage for you to make up your own minds. BBC mm. doesn't tell people what to think, like these other programmes. It provides them, hopefully, with the evidence to allow people to be informed and make up their own minds. That's what it should be doing. Mm. And I think it's interesting that you know people did have to leave to be able to do those things. But the truth is that those kind of shows are a lot easier to do than fact-based, impartial journalism on the BBC, where... You have to go to the effort of finding out, effort of finding the evidence, going to the front lines of wars, uh, you know, doing the difficult job of properly weighting those arguments and getting them in the right proportion or all the rest of it. That is much, much harder and, by mm. the way, more expensive than putting someone behind a microphone <laughs> and letting them sound off.
1: Crikey! So, just to uh, move on a little bit, I've got some more general sort of just BBC questions. These are just things I'm burning to ask about BBC stuff. So, but question number one, this has obsessed me for years: uh, Did the coverage of the Queen's death did that play out? As expected, because presumably you must have been involved for years in the planning of, of what, hap- what happened. So when, when, it, when the moment actually came, was that all like pressing play on that something that was pre-recorded, or what? Or, <laughs> or, or, or did anything unexpected
2: happen? I, I'm sure those people who were involved in it, which it had been just a question of pressing play. <laughs> um, I, I thought it was it went extremely well, to be honest mm. with you. I mean, I was a viewer, and I was a, you know it's it's a, over a decade since I left the BBC, so I've got no you know no mm. axe to grind around that. But I did think it was extremely well done. Of course, there was a lot of pre-prepared material. Mm. I I remember the beginning of worrying about royal deaths, uh, which happened, I think, in the 1980s, probably, when somebody said, you know, there's never been a a, a monarch die while there's been brought, you know, television. So how would television do it? And then, and the BBC suddenly kind of went into a spasm and thought, oh, my goodness, we need to think about this. So started preparing material, having rehearsals, thinking through what the choreography should be, what's the right amount of time to do it, what's the right tone to take and all the rest of it. And there were, you know, over a decade or two decades of thinking about it and rehearsals and preparation of material and revising it and all the rest of it. Uh, and actually, other broadcasters followed suit and, and said, Oh, actually, they're onto something here. We need to think about this as well. Um, and I think actually it paid off. Uh, mm. I, I, I thought it went extremely well, uh, a very difficult moment, um, but I thought it was handled very well. And I actually thought, you know, it's a national broadcaster. You know, she'd been on the throne for all of those decades. Um, uh, uh, she, you know, represented the nation in many ways. It mm. felt like the right the right weight and if anything people said oh you did so much you shouldn't have done that much Mm. that's far better for the bbc to do too much and too little surely so uh, i thought they got it got it Mm. right and did very well
1: i was actually a bit surprised about the tone um in that how quickly even within the first uh few hours it became more sort of fun and reflective which i guess i by which i mean it wasn't sort of it wasn't like a funeral well i think it
2: was you know what was very is very different from diana's death Mm. of course because you know Uh, This was a monarch in her 90s and it was really, you know, a a moment of celebration of her life. A lifetime of duty could take a rather different tone to, you know, a very tragic accident in which someone was was killed in their prime. So, you know, the different tones were appropriate.
1: Mm. And... um... Actually, it's, it's interesting as you mentioned as well um, about uh, how you know, TV is on air when these things happen. Because something uh, I'm so curious to ask about, I know you've had thoughts about this previously as well, is what do you think the future is of, say, the BBC News Channel and the rolling news <laughs> in general? Because if everyone's online, do we still need the studios sat there with someone reading the news 24 hours a day? Or is mm-hmm. there, there going to be smarter or different ways to do it? OK, so... Um... Uh, Let me think carefully about how
2: how I get into this, because I've got a lot of friends who uh, work in the news channel still. Um, Look, uh, you know, news channels started uh, in the 90s, and it was, you know, with satellite technology, it was possible to have rolling news, and it was right the BBC went into it. Uh, um, But as I wrote, you know, a decade or so ago... Uh, I was slightly worried that the news channels market themselves totally on breaking news mm. because it was, you know, it's the equivalent of the phone alerts we were talking about earlier. Everything was breaking news, breaking news to try and get people to watch. But the truth is, by the time social media had taken off, people didn't get breaking news by switching on a news channel, they got it on their phones. So I said, What is the purpose of the news channel? Not to say they all need to close, but to say, they need to think about what their purpose is beyond being able to say we can break some news that you you know may not have known about because they needed to have a, another purpose and some of that could have been in-depth or big interviews or more context or a different kind of reporting or whatever it may be uh, and also as part of that to think about how digital technology was changing to be able to give people more choice about you know what they could consume in terms of rolling news or 24-hour access to news mm. now a lot of that has has happened most recently, the BBC's merged its international news channel and its UK news channel. Uh, I don't think that's worked. I understand they've had to do it because of cost reasons, because the BBC's budget has been cut by 30 percent in real terms over a decade. Um, and that's you know, a saving they had to make. But I don't think it works for the UK audience and I don't think it works for the international audience. So mm. there's another problem there waiting to be solved. But I think, um, you know, I think there will always be rolling news in some way and not least because when big events happen, to be on air already allows you to Mm. pick it up and run with it in a way that you have to start from a cold start. And I I did this quite a lot in the days before 24-hour news where you know you're in a newsroom and you've suddenly got to get on air and mass material and try and keep it going it's very hard work (laughs) um so i think i think there will always be 24-hour news channels in some form but i think they need to develop and they need to focus on their their real audience rather than just sort of splodging it all into a bucket and hoping for the best
1: (laughs) do you think broadcasters can learn anything from twitch and I mean that sort of seriously because I often look at like broadcast TV and I'm thinking, well, that's an expensive set and all an the expensive mm. lighting and all of this planning that's gone into it. But then you look at like how effective like just Twitch and streamers are at turning around content and they can, you know, do some really high quality stuff because ultimately the more interesting thing for the viewer is what the people behind the microphones are saying. So I wonder if there's some sort of convergence there where like there was a big debate uh, or there's, there was rumor uh, a few weeks ago about Newsnight getting its uh, budget cuts uh, for various reasons and after I thought well you could just do it as a podcast and you know you, the bit you pay for mm. is the expensive journalism bit where someone goes and you know rifles through the, the files to expose the scandal. You, you've been and then reading you do... the article I wrote in 2014 <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> because that's more or less what I was saying. I mean I think if I was starting afresh today mm. saying how do we provide a 24-hour news and information service I wouldn't say let's spend all our money on a big studio and you know, uh, broadcast towers and, you know, all the rest of it. I would Mm. be saying, how do we use, you know, digital and on demand to do it? Um, uh, But, you know, uh, a big part of what the BBC does is television and is old-fashioned broadcasting, and it does work well. And when a big story breaks, I do actually want to sit down in front of the TV and watch it. You know, I'll Mm. definitely be doing that for all the elections that are coming up over the next year or so. I'll be, you know, glued to the screen through the night and seeing how it develops. And, you know, true for many other big breaking stories, so it absolutely has its place and role. But it's, you know, not the old joke, if I was starting again, would I start from here? Possibly not.
1: <laughs> and and talking of which, and, and, and very finally I want to get and uh, ask you about the sort of future of the BBC more generally, because you you obviously saw the oh, corporation yeah, We can solve, solve that in 30 seconds. We can solve that in 30 seconds. Because, again, the, the BBC is sort of weird, because I think if you were to invent a public broadcast, if you said to someone today, if, if it didn't exist, and you was like, well, we're going to take some money from everyone who has a TV, and we're going to spend it on some news programmes, but also we're going to use, basically, essentially public money to make a dancing show, and a show mm. about a man who travels in a box through space. Mm. People go, that's crazy, What what is the public sector doing, <laughs> paying mm. for all of that? So, there's, and if you look at the sort of trajectory of where the license fee uh, is politically and as a political football it doesn't seem that long for this world so i was just wondering what what is does the bbc have a well, future uh,
2: i hope so uh, and of course it depends on you know what the old vision of public service broadcasting is so mm. historically it's always been you know uh, for the bbc you know, a very broad vision of public broadcasting. It's not just news and information and it's not just market failure, what the commercial broadcasters can't or won't do, Mm. that you have to provide high quality content for everybody. So everybody pays a licence fee, everybody should get something out of it and that there should be some public service kernel behind what they do so even strictly which you know i love like everybody else you know that's about learning it's the journey as they all say and you know there's a sort of you know there's a sort of warm purpose behind it which is rather different from you know x factor or something which is highly competitive in a a slightly different way in a different tone so Mm. you know i think the bbc you can argue these things that, that, that you know that it is educational or it's entertaining in a particular way or wildlife you know has a particular place and you know But today, looking forward in this hyper-competitive world, what is the vision for public service broadcasting and what is the vision for the BBC? And I'm not sure that there is an updated kind of vision for what the future of public service broadcasting will be. Now, my former colleagues at the BBC will, you know, leap out of their chairs and shout at me and say, yes, of course there is. I don't feel it yet. And I think it's quite difficult because if you, you know, start to anticipate the end of the licence fee... There's a drive, therefore, to commercialize more, commercialize your your um, uh, commissioning more, to commercialize, you know, your program sales and international operations to try and b- mm. maximize some revenue from there. And that starts to change the motivations inside the organizations and the kind of things that you commission and bring about and so on as well. So I slightly worry about that. and And I don't know what the the real vision is now presumably it will come to a head in the next charter renewal process and that will probably be under a Labour government who knows maybe it won't be mm. um and you know there are these moments every 10 years where the BBC and government and lots of other people can pile in with what they think the BBC should be doing but at the minute it doesn't quite feel as if it's there so and and you know I hope it emerges
1: and you don't have a favoured or preferred Plan you you don't think you know it should be a private subscription model or it should be uh, publicly funded through like almost like a grant from the government because it's just doing an inherently good thing or something like that.
2: Well, I I think that the license fee was originally invented to try and insulate the BBC from political pressure, but of course that's not the case anymore. It's become a lightning rod for political pressure, so that, mm. that kind of doesn't work. On the other hand, it's quite an effective way of funding the BBC still, um, but it does feel pretty anachronistic, so I suspect it's on its way out. Universality, by which we mean mm. everybody having access to the BBC, is, I think, absolutely essential. So I'm against subscription personally. I suspect the BBC's looking quite hard at subscription, but I, I think for the reasons I've just said, that would change a lot of the commissioning, a lot of the culture and the nature of the BBC if you do that, and I think it's a pretty risky uh, road to go down. So that you fall back onto some kind of a household levy in some way, but again, if that then starts to impact on the public finances, any you know incoming government after the next election is not going to be very keen on it because they've got a lot of other things they've got to spend money on. So I think it's quite a complicated equation. I'm glad
1: I don't have to solve it. <laughs> and on that note, I'm going. I'm going to um, bring things to a close because it's been so fascinating. I could I could throw questions at you about BBC stuff all day because I'm fascinated but I'm gonna I'm gonna mercifully let you get away uh, Richard Sandbrook uh, thank you very much it's been a pleasure thanks James okay.